We are reading from 1 Peter 3, verses 8 through 12, if you want to turn and read along. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This is the word of the Lord. Just quickly, I want to introduce Reuben. Um, we're in this uh, series uh, called uh, Guest Best, which puts all sorts of pressure on, uh, on uh, our friends that come. Um, it was really just more of a cheeky title. Uh, to come up with a way to say, hey, we're going to have five guest speakers in a row, bringing whatever they kind of feel the Lord has uh, given them. And so Ruben and I, uh, Ruben's from Belfast, so you'll get a familiar accent this morning. Um, and then next week we have uh, John Irvine from down to Country Bay, and we might literally need an interpreter for that. And I want to make that joke now because I really love that joke, but I don't want to do it while he's here and offend him next week. So when he's here next week, you just remember the re-joke and then kind of, you know... Uh, <laughs> So I make it all the time in front of him, but uh, I'll try to not slag him next week. So, um, But Ruben and I met seven years ago whenever we were just kind of starting out in, in exploring church planting. Um, a guy called Steve Timmis pulled, I think it was your idea, right? I want to give you credit. You said to Steve, hey, let's pull all these kind of uh, just ragtag guys together that were at the very beginning stages of thinking about planting. And uh, I had my like long Dave Grohl hair back then, and it was a disaster. And <laughs> We all had these uh, amazing plans uh, to change the world, and, and Ruben and I have done that, clearly. So, uh, um, yeah, so I really appreciate, appreciate Ruben. Uh, he's planted a church in Shepherd's Bush in London, and uh, is doing an amazing job there with Trinity Rest, and uh, he's really blessed our men this weekend, and have, uh, I think all of our guys have just really had good feedback with that. Uh, Ruben has a, this unique ability to take what would be like a hardcore gospel hall message and just make it really encouraging because the gospel's just shot through it. And so I'm like, I feel like I'm being like, this feels like a good punch in the gut, but I'm enjoying it so much. And I'm, I'm just encouraged and inspired to live more for Jesus. It doesn't feel like a beatdown, but there's a little beatdown in there. And he's got this great ability to do that. I hope you take that as a compliment, mate. So um, I, uh, I know you'll be blessed by him this morning. And um, uh, it's, it's a privilege to have guys in uh, our network in Acts 29 uh, that I, I just know I could call, they would say yes, and could just fully, fully entrust them um, with our pulpit um, because they're men who love Jesus deeply, who love his word, who understand the gospel, not just in a mental way, but to watch it play out in the life of his family and his own personal life. We've had great just conversations, um, you know, uh, even challenging conversations this, this weekend. And, and so thank you, brother, for coming. And um, let me just pray for you. Father, um, we just thank you for Reuben and his ministry and how uh, you've worked in his life. Uh, just to even hear his story of coming to faith uh, last night, I was just so encouraged again by that, that, uh, that you work in ways that just seem impossible for man. And uh, we are all evidence of that, but Reuben stands as evidence as that this morning. And so, Father, just empower him. May he have freedom uh, this morning uh, with your word uh, as just the Spirit leads him. Um, and, uh, yeah, just do your work through him powerfully this morning. Amen. 
Thanks, Lucas. It's a joy to be with you. It's great to be home. I always love coming back, so any chance to do that is much uh, appreciated. Um, I've really enjoyed being with the men of the church this weekend. Uh, always enjoy spending time with my friend Lucas, and uh, particularly uh, glad to be able to lend my shoulder to the wheel a bit during this difficult trying season for him uh, and for his family, and yet always it's encouraging to be with him to see the way he's processing this, this cancer challenge full of faith and full of confidence in the Lord's goodness. And so I come away from this more blessed and strengthened and encouraged than I imagine even I'm, I'm supposed to do that here. That's been my experience. It's a privilege. And uh, as, as Lucas said, seven something odd years ago we met and uh, there was a real affinity there. Of course, anybody that uh, is coming uh, to, to try and do ministry among my people, you know, I'm, I'm obviously delighted because you are still my people. I've been out of Northern Ireland for 16 years, but uh, it's still home. Let me pray before we get to the text. Let me pray quickly one more time. Father, please speak in these moments through your word and have us listen. And by your spirit, work amongst us, we pray that you might change us and make us more like your son. For Jesus' sake, amen. As Lucas said, it's the guest's best series. I don't know what my best sermon is. I actually hope I haven't preached it yet. <laughs> so I can't, I can't, maybe it'll happen this morning. You know? uh, you're welcome. The, the, um, uh, the, the point is that he said to me, you know, I said, look, what about this? What about this? What about this? We're in, a, in our church in London. We're going through a series in the book of 1 Peter. And 1 Peter is an ancient text, but it is written, if you, if you look in your Bibles, uh, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, Peter the author, an apostle of Jesus Christ, writing to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Peter, an apostle, writing to scattered Christians in these places. And we think to ourselves, well, what's the point of contact with this letter and us uh, in, in village in Belfast in the 21st century? And the point of contact is actually in that phrase, the exiles of the dispersion. Peter is using, I mean, that sounds even more disconnected, right? That sounds even more unusual. How is that relevant to us? Well, Peter is using Old Testament language uh, to describe the status of the, the Christians that he's writing to in this New Testament context. So, uh, the Old Testament, this language uh, was how the people of God were described. Exiles was how they were described when they were away from their homeland, and they were under the rule of a, uh, an influence that was not their God, that was the hostile pagan uh, cultural rule of the day. They were away from home, and they were in a hostile context. Exile meant, therefore, opposition. It meant persecution. It meant trials, and it meant struggle. And that was their experience, that uh, this audience that Peter is writing to, these Christians, scattered as they were around these places in uh, the Roman Empire, modern-day Turkey, uh, their experience was that of trial and struggle and difficulty. And that uh, hardship comes up again and again and again in the letter. Chapter 1, verse 6, Peter says that his readers may have been grieved by many and various trials. Chapter 2, verse 12, he says, when they, that is the, the uh, culture, speak against you as evildoers. So, the culture is saying that you, although you're seeking to serve the Lord, are evil. Chapter 3, verse 9, he says, don't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Again and again through the letter, we get these little signs that the people to whom Peter is writing are enduring hardship, specifically because they are Christians. 
suspicion and criticism and verbal slander, and therefore they are mocked and they are marginalized and they are pushed to the edges of the Roman Empire, pushed to the margins of the great Roman Empire. This sermon series in, in our church, I've called it The Church at the Edge of the World. That's what they feel like. They are seeking to live for Christ, but they've been pushed to the edge of a culture that is opposed to things of Christ and the gospel. And what happens in that context? You feel weak. You feel vulnerable. You feel insignificant. And so Peter is writing to them to encourage them, to tell them to stand firm, to tell them what they need to do to be able to live well in that context. And when we think about the context and we think about that message, we realize that this is a message for us. Even though there are church buildings scattered across this city, it's one of the things that strikes me when I come home again and again and again. We're, we, as a church, are, are, are meeting in a school building. Uh, we can't find a place locally where they'll allow us to meet. Um, all of the public space. So part of the reason we went to Shepherd's Bush is because there's a need for the, for the gospel there. Very, on the one hand, very strongly secular. On the other hand, there's a very significant Muslim uh, community there. And all of, the, all of the different versions of rebellion against Christ between those two are there present in Shepherd's Bush. And what that means is all the public spaces are very edgy about anything political or anything religious. So when we try and hire this place or that place, they won't let us. Uh, and there are uh, two currently vacant or like dead or dying church buildings in the community, and we think to ourselves, wouldn't it be fantastic, Lord, if you would give these to us? <laughs> and yet... Those buildings are few and far between. And somewhere like central London, they get sold off to people for huge, huge money to be developed and to be used in all kinds of other ways. When I come to Belfast, it just blows me away again. Where, where, two, where two roads meet here, you've got three churches on the corners and a pub. That's typically what happens. Despite the fact that there is this great legacy of Christianity, the culture is increasingly disinterested in the faith, is it not? And slowly, in some cases, not so slowly, in other cases, people are becoming more and more hostile and critical of, of the Christian faith. The media enjoys making Christians look daft, uh, or perhaps even more sinister, making us look dangerous because of what we believe. I check in fairly regularly with Northern Ireland News. Like I say, I still feel like this is home. I still feel connected. I listen to some of the radio. I watch some of the TV. Uh, occasionally, there are a couple of local comedians that you have here, and, and I listen to them, and uh, it's, it makes me cry because I want to come home. But it's very common to hear them mock and criticize Christians particularly, and the whole idea of Christianity, it's something that is poked fun at in Northern Ireland now, is it not? Well, Peter's letter was written into that context to encourage these churches and to encourage them to stand firm. The letter opens with the reminder of, so we're dropping into chapter 3, but a quick summary. The letter opens with the reminder of who they are as God's people. God has chosen them. If you're a Christian, God has chosen you. He has set His love on you in Christ, and He has given you a guaranteed, glorious future inheritance. And in doing that, He has then also called you to be holy, chapter 2, the end of chapter 1 and into chapter 2, called you to be holy, set apart for Him. And Peter, having told the people this, 
he then turns their focus outwards. He says, this is who you are, and it's like he opens the doors at the back of the church and says, right, now, so go and live this way in the culture. Go and live this way in a hostile culture that doesn't, that, that, for which there is absolutely no benefit to you culturally if you are a Christian. And the turning point, if you can see in your Bibles, chapter 2, verse 12, verse 11, I should say, he says this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that they, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Basic summary, he says, don't sin and do good. That's how you live in the culture. Okay, let's pray and go home. <laughs> Don't sin and do good. It's simple. It's not complicated. However, we know that it's more difficult to work that out in real life, isn't it? And so, because it's easier said than done, Peter then takes time to ground what that looks like in the difficult cases. So, he starts chapter 2, verse 13. This is how you live in a state that is hostile to the Christian faith. Then he looks at those who have authority over us in the workplace, particularly those who are harsh and unjust, chapter 2, verse 18. And then he outlines how Christians should relate to their spouses, particularly those spouses who don't share their Christian faith. And then in our section this morning, chapter 3, verse 8, Peter addresses how Christians are to relate to people more widely. How are Christians to relate to others, to one another, and to the world? Verse 9, it's a very simple answer. Those who treat you with evil intent, who speak about you in slanderous and abusive ways, we're to bless them. We're to bless them. We're to behave in a positive and generous way towards those who treat us badly. That sounds ridiculous. And it sounds, if we're honest, particularly ridiculous to modern ears, to ears in a culture like ours. Our current climate is such that if I simply disagree with you, disagree with your view on something, I'm a hater. I'm a fascist, I'm a Marxist, I'm a misogynist, I'm a racist, whatever it is. Bigot, right. Yeah, I'm a bigot. Whatever way you name the disagreement, I'm your enemy. That's the way it's set up. Discussion, out the window. Reason, debate, engaging with ideas, forget it. It's all abandoned. And then in lots of cases, trial by media, whether it's social media or otherwise, can mean that my reputation is shredded. And that's expected. That's okay. In fact, that's normal. That's what you do. And if you don't do that, it's unusual. We are expected to take offense someone challenges your view on something, they are a bully. If they comment negatively on your social media, they are blocked. If they criticize you for any reason, you are expected to fight, fight back. So, what does that mean? It means that to move towards that critic with a positive demeanor, to seek to bless them, is really strange indeed. But let's be honest, even if you're not that emotionally brittle, even if you don't think naturally uh, they disagree with me, they must be a bigot or whatever it might be, there's absolutely nothing instinctive about this, is there? There's nothing within us. When you're on the receiving end, and Peter, as I say, has in view those who suffer simply because they're Christians, when you're on the receiving end, your instinct is not, 
I'm going to bless this person. It might be to retreat, just to go quiet about your faith, just to take it out of the agenda altogether. You think, well, on the one hand, maybe I'm a bit scared, actually. I don't, I don't, want, to, I don't want to be public about my faith because I'm worried about what might happen. Or perhaps probably more straightforwardly, you just think, I actually don't need the hassle. I, I can very well do without this hostility and opposition, this mockery. And so, what we do is we compartmentalize our lives, and Christian stuff gets shunted over to this context. It's something we do on a Sunday morning. It's maybe something we do at a personal level in the morning in private or in the evening in private, the beginning or the end of the day. But we've really just stepped away from being public about our faith. We privatize it. The other alternative is, of course, if you're wired a bit differently, your instinct is to fight back, to get justice, to show them, to humiliate them. Who do they think they are speaking about me like this, speaking about us like this? Whatever way we respond, we're not thinking, I'm going to bless them. And yet, that is what Peter is calling us to do. So, the question is, question for us this morning is, when our instinct is to go the other way, when our instinct is either to, uh, to, to run and hide or to step in and fight, fight or flight, when the heat is on, when we feel on the one hand like we want to bunker down and just huddle together away from the big bad world or run, from the, run for the hills or fight fire with fire, however we do it, how can we become people who bless instead? How can we do it? And I suppose, what then does that blessing actually look like? What does it look like to bless in the context of hostility? That's what Peter is taken up with in this passage, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. I've got two points. The first point is, how is it possible? It's possible through healthy church community, verse 8. Healthy church community. Finally, verse 8, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. All of you, Peter says, he's addressing the community as a whole, and his point is that in order to stand against the slander of the world, and not just to stand against it, but to push into it, to push back against it, you need the Christian community, you need the church to be the kind of place that is supportive, a place of refuge. We need community around us as Christians where we don't face hostility and insults, but where we're encouraged and we're strengthened to persevere. For that to be the case, the church needs to cultivate these virtues that Peter outlines. He lists five of them, and they, they center on brotherly love. Now, this phrase, brotherly love, is a phrase that is used several times by Peter in this book. It's the way that he expects the relationships in the church to be conducted, to be characterized. Brotherly love. And the suggestion is then that both, that, well, that brotherly love has both a certain kind of mind and a certain kind of heart. So, have a look at that list. The mind is to be united and humble. That's the first and the last quality that he outlines. So, what does it mean to have unity of mind? Well, it means that the church is to have a shared mindset 
And on the basis of what Peter has said already in the letter, uh, chapter 1, verse 13, he says this, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's saying that we are to have a shared mind about Jesus Christ and about the reality of His return. That day, that future day when we will experience the fullness of the grace that we live in in the present. Peter uses that day as a a motivation for perseverance and trials throughout his letter. And he's saying, look, you come together around that reality in your mind. Our unity is not based on our political views. It's not based on our cultural background. It's not based in some ways on our shared interests. It is based on Christ and His work, what He achieved for us through the cross and resurrection as we look back, and what He has won for us in the future. It's always all about Jesus. I think about this. When Jesus lived the life that we should have lived but didn't because of our sin, when He then died the death that we deserved for that sin, but He did it in our place, when He was then raised again from the dead in vindication and victory, What Jesus achieved in that moment, in those moments, was a salvation for people who are united to Him. And when you turn from your sin and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are united then not just to Him, but to others who have done the same. If you think about it like this, um, the Lord Jesus, uh, God is up here and uh, Christ is, is exalted and we're all down here on earth, and uh, someone puts their faith in Christ over here, someone puts their faith in Christ over here, and so on and so on, and we're united to Christ. But by being united to Christ, we're then brought together into this community, into a unity, and that's expressed through local churches scattered across the world. And so, the church is designed to live that unity out, and it starts with a shared mindset about Jesus about what He's done for us and what He's going to do for us on the last day. It starts with unity of mind. We're also to be humble-minded, verse 8. Just like this, like-mindedness focuses our thoughts on Christ, so it is with a humble mind. We consider the humility of Christ, and we emulate that. He did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made Himself nothing humbling himself to the cursed death of crucifixion. When Jesus, before the incarnation, before He took on flesh to become one of us, He didn't look down and say, you know what, I'm above this. I'm better than this. He certainly was. He didn't say, I'm better than this. He didn't say, you know what, they're not worthy of my time and attention, and we certainly weren't. He didn't say, someone else can do this. No, he was humble, and he took it on himself. And that same humility will mark the life of a healthy church. People with a humble mindset are are people who are approachable. They take initiative to serve. They aren't hard to challenge when they need correction. They're the sort of people, actually, that you want to be around when it feels like the world is against you. When it feels like living for Christ is difficult, those are the kind of people you want to be around. The question is, are you that kind of person? 
Are you someone that wants, are you someone that others want as an ally when the cultural battle to honor Christ is raging? There's an older pastor uh, guy that comes to uh, meet me every couple of months, and he's had a fruitful ministry over many decades, and he still serves his church in all manner of, of ways. Uh, he's a fantastic preacher. He has preached faithfully for, for decades, and yet he'll often do the children's work, and he's, he's church planting again uh, in, his, in his 70s, uh, this time helping a younger man in, in that context. Truth is, he's forgotten more about ministry probably than I'll ever know. <laughs> and yet, without fail, he initiates a meeting with me, and he always makes the journey. It's a car journey and then two trains to get to where I am. He comes to see me. Uh, no, no, I'll come to you. And despite my lesser knowledge and experience, and it, it's the gulf is massive, it always feels when I spend time with him that he's glad to see me, and he's interested in what I have to say. And after we spend time together, I always go away encouraged. There's only one reason for that. It's because he is humble. And after I see him, I always want to be more like Christ because I see what being like Christ looks like in him. Humble people are attractive people to godly people because they show us what it looks like to emulate Christ and we want to, we want to be more like Christ when we see them. Are you that kind of community? I was, as I say, I've been with the men this weekend. I was struck by um, the quality of relationships that is very tangible amongst the men and a real evident humility that's there. Brotherly love requires us to have a mind that is centered on Christ united in Him, and humble like Him. But it also requires a disposition of the heart. Mind needs to be put into action, and that action is seen, verse 8, in sympathy and a tender heart, or word literally is compassion, sympathy and compassion. Sympathy, again, this reminds us of Jesus. Jesus is described in Hebrews as our great high priest who sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. Professor Edmund Clowney describes a sympathetic heart as one that shows a readiness, okay, so a disposition towards a readiness to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. It reflects a willingness to understand the struggles that others are having and to try, where possible, to help. When you're trying to live faithfully for Christ, and because you're trying to live faithfully for Christ, your, your life is difficult. It's a struggle. In some cases, you're being made miserable. When you're finding things tough and you come to church, it can often feel in some churches like you're the only person that feels that way. I, again, referring to the weekend with the men, I, I was struck by the sincerity and the genuineness of, of the um, uh, the vulnerability of the way some of the men were speaking. It's not a particularly Northern Irish characteristic, is it? Male vulnerability. And yet, we need to have sincere sympathy for one another. I'm quite sure that in this church, there is no culture that you're the only one that's struggling. 
but it can often feel that way in some contexts. It's never the case. And so, to have someone, let me encourage you, that to have someone in that context, if you, if you as a church family, uh, to have someone who is willing to come alongside someone else who shares their own struggles, who says, this is where I find it tough, who has had similar experiences or is enduring similar experiences and can sympathize. That is always encouraging, usually always encouraging. <laughs> In some, it, it's not good to be a pity party. It's not good to come along. So sympathy is not encouraging wallowing in, in, your, uh, in your misery. But there is a real sense of solidarity when you know that others in your church or your small group, your MC, are feeling your pain and bearing your pain with you because you're not alone and they're holding your hands. And Peter says then this sympathy finally leads to compassion. Um, Peter, of course, we know would have seen Jesus' compassion firsthand as he engaged with the crowds during his ministry, his compassion for the sick and for the poor and for the needy. So once more, Peter is calling us to qualities that take us back to Christ. And he's saying, as those who have experienced that compassion, Christ's compassion for us, as He reached out to us and as He brought us into His family, as He provides for our needs, as Christ took the initiative to move towards us in our need, we didn't do anything to deserve it, and yet He did it for us. Just as we have received compassion from Christ, so we should be tenderhearted toward others. Are you a church family that shows compassion toward one another? As you think about your community life together as a church, is it marked in significant ways by compassion? Or is weakness and need something that people are afraid to show for fear of being looked down on or for fear of being crushed? I suspect some of you come to this church because that was your experience in another church, and it's not like that here. You need to work on that. Are you aware of the needs in this community? And does your heart go out to the people who have those needs? And where you are able to, do you step in to try and meet those needs? That's what compassion requires. Compassionate people don't wait to love and care for those who are struggling. You notice them in church life because they take initiative. It just seems to flow out of them. They're not indifferent to the struggles of their brothers and sisters. They enter into their pain. They stand with them in their struggles, and they provide where they can to relieve their burdens. A united and a humble mind that creates a sympathetic and compassionate heart, that is what brotherly love involves. And a church that is marked by these virtues will be a healthy community of strength and support. It will be a place of belonging in an isolated world, an isolating world, a place of perspective when you need to be reminded of verse 12 of chapter 3, that the Lord's eyes are on you, and He will bring down those who oppose you. That's very often where our problems come. We lose perspective. We think that our situation is so bad that God has forgotten us. And yet we come back, we get around our brothers and sisters, and we get that perspective again that God is with us may feel like our words are evaporating. We'll say more on that in a minute. They're evaporating into the sky, and He doesn't hear, but that's not true. A place of belonging, a place of perspective, a place of encouragement, 
where you see that you haven't actually gone mad even though everybody else around you is telling you that you have because you've chosen to follow Christ. That's the sort of community that enables us to be the sort of men and women who can go into a hostile world and can bring blessing. So can you see why belonging to a healthy local church is such a vital thing? The good deeds that Peter, that we referred to earlier on at the beginning in chapter 2, verse 12, that Peter says that the Gentiles, the pagan world will see, the activity in the world that will lead the world to glorify God on the day of His visitation. It all flows from these distinctive loving relationships in the church community. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, Jesus said. By what? By this, this one thing, this is how the world will know that you're my disciples. John 13, 35, that you love one another. That your community is marked by brotherly love. As I say, I've seen it firsthand, and I'm sure that there is plenty of evidence of this brotherly love at work in your life together here at Village, but you can always grow in these qualities, can't you? And if you're going to bless others, despite the current cultural rage against the church, you're going to need to grow in them. Point number one, how is it possible? Healthy church community. Point number two, what it looks like. What it looks like, good words and peaceful actions. That's verses 9 to 12. Peter starts, when we think about what it looks like, Peter starts with what it doesn't look like, verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. When you're mistreated, he's saying, first thing, don't retaliate. Whatever you don't retaliate. And we've already said that that's unusual in our culture. It's positively encouraged. You're thought that that is the natural thing to do, and we instinctively feel that way. We want justice. We want to mete out justice. We want to retaliate because uh, that's just, that's, that's right. But what Peter is saying in verse 9 here is that to do that is to simply drag us into the same sin as the person who wronged us. Someone uh, treat you in an evil way. If you retaliate like for like, you're being drawn into sin. There is no evil option that is good. To engage in evil is sin. So Peter says, don't retaliate. Don't respond in kind, but that's not enough. Don't stop there. See, just sitting on your hands or staying tight-lipped in that situation when you're being mistreated, that's not enough. It needs even more than that. If we will obtain the blessing, Peter says, of a heavenly inheritance, the blessing that he has mentioned several times up to this point in his letter, and the blessing that Psalm 34, which is what is quoted here in verses 10 to 12, the blessing that that Psalm refers to as good days, if that's going to be ours, if we're going to receive that, we need to positively step forward to bless. Verse 9, on the contrary, don't repay evil or reviling with those things. On the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. And Psalm 34 then describes what that involves in two ways. Verse 10, good speech. Use your words well. Whoever desires to love life, see good days. Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Look, the temptation to say things about that person who makes your life difficult is huge. 
And Peter says, don't do that. You know, look, let's be honest, it's really easy to take a kind of scorched earth approach to uh, the character of someone who treats us badly. We hammer them for what they did. We read into their motives. We, it just kind of uh, multiplies and multiplies. They've done this, so we go back at them like for like, and then we make it worse and worse, and we say, yeah, and they did that because they're this kind of person, and they're this kind of person. Ah, you'd expect nothing less from him because his father was like that, and his father before him, and all of a sudden, you've rinsed a legacy of the, you know, and all I did was say that you were an idiot for being a Christian. And again, you know, we feel like it's okay because they treated us badly. No, blessing them means that we use our words well towards them with honesty, with integrity, with positivity. And look, this isn't just the case in the world. I think there's an interesting ambiguity about the way that Peter writes here. Finally, all of you, he speaks about brotherly love. The emphasis there is definitely on the, on the church community, and he doesn't then say, oh, and then these other people outside the church. It's, it, I think it's, it's implied, but let's be honest. Christians can say and do terrible things sometimes. Many of us may well have experienced firsthand a worse treatment at the hands of Christians or professing Christians than we've ever experienced from, from those who don't profess faith in Christ. Christians can behave appallingly, and many do in the name of Christ. When that's the case, make sure that the way you speak about them is geared towards good and not evil. Remember, brotherly love. When someone wrongs you, you go and speak to them directly. And if that doesn't get you anywhere, you speak to one of the elders. But you don't gossip about them to others. I often find in some cases, people will speak to almost anybody else before they'll go and speak to the person who has wronged them. And then opinions get formed, uh, stories get spread, and all of a sudden, well, the only thing that comes out of that is bad, bad juju. That is not how it should be. On occasion, certainly when tempers are running high, keeping your tongue from evil will simply mean saying nothing, not to that person. There's, you know, you think, I've just said, you know, we'll go and speak to that person. Perhaps not at that moment. Don't speak to them. Don't speak to anyone else because the intent that you have when you want to say what you say is more about revenge. It's more about self-justification, and you'll just get drawn into sin. Blessing others means using good speech, but it also involves, verse 11, the pursuit of peace. Verse 11, let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. When you are mistreated or slandered, don't inflame the situation by getting confrontational. I'm sure we've all been part of conversations where there's been a frank exchange of views, but it's been pretty civil. It's, it, you know, we've, we've, we're, in lots of ways, Northern Irish people are good. We're way better than English people, I can tell you that, at doing, at doing um, a robust discussion. <laughs> Saying what you actually mean. Got myself into all kinds of difficulty over the last number of years. <laughs> Saying what I actually mean. <laughs> but we've been part of conversations where the conversation has been frank, but it's been civil, and then all of a sudden, in a, the blinking of an eye, it turns and the whole thing escalates. The tone changes, and before you know it, you're in a full-blown argument. 
the whole thing has turned sour. Now, conflict has its place in life and in healthy discourse, definitely, but it's not something that we should seek out. Rather, we should be peacemakers. Rather than creating further animosity or hostility, we should be seeking to bring about peace by doing what we can to bless, seeking to do good. I'm going over this, and I know we've said it already, but we're hearing this, and you're thinking, this is madness. This is insane. I can just imagine Stephen Nolan's disbelief, indignation even, as he interviews you on his show. Hey, let me get, let me get this straight. <laughs> oh, 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 hold on a minute, hold on. Now, are you saying that when someone has a go at you, you know, he does that, yeah, you actually seek to speak well of them, do you, do you? And make amends, even before there's an apology. Yes, Stephen. And here's why I can do that. Here's why I can use my words well. And here's why I can pursue peace, even with you, Stephen. It's because in the end, in the end, I can leave whatever injustice I have experienced with my perfectly just God. You know that's true, don't you? In God's economy, no injustice goes unpunished. We know that either the persecutor will pay for their sin or they will trust in Jesus and He will pay for their sin instead. Either way, it is not our job to get revenge. It is not my job to take justice into my own hands. It's not my job to stipulate what that person has to do or say to make amends so that I can extend grace. And you know, when you can leave injustice, and, and not just a feeling of injustice, but actual real injustice, when you can leave injustice with our perfectly just God, that is incredibly liberating. So many of us go through life twisted up with anger and bitterness for some wrong that's been committed against us. And perhaps there's never been justice. And we think that if we don't hold on to that anger, if we don't bear that grudge, if we don't do what we can to tell others how wicked and evil that other person was, that that wrongdoer will get away with it. But the Christian can rest in the fact that the God of all the earth will do right. And what that does is if we can get that into our hearts, if we can get that truth to inform our instincts, in the, and it only happens in the power of the Holy Spirit because we can't do that ourselves. If we can get the fact that the God of all the earth will always do right and that we can trust Him for justice, it frees us from the need to seek revenge. It enables us to pursue peace in our relationships, and it frees us to be those who bless and look, friends, that's where you find God's favor, verse 12. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Holding grudges, wanting to get your own back, speaking of someone in order to damage their character, the Lord is against you. You forfeit the blessing. I mean, he might not 
be against you eternally. In some cases, He might, but if you've got your faith in Christ sincerely, He's not against you eternally, obviously. But you do forfeit the blessing of close communion with Him. But, to quote Jesus, loving your enemies, praying for those who persecute you, paying back evil with good, the Lord's eye is on you. His ear is open to your prayer. Christians don't speak into a void when we pray. Our words don't just hit the ceiling and dissolve. They go all the way to the courts of heaven. And the Lord, the image that we get here is that His ear is open. It's like He's leaning down, just wanting to hear us as we bring our prayers to Him, because He is a good and loving Heavenly Father. His ear is open to our prayers. His face is turned against those who do evil. Our God is there, and He hears us. So, village Belfast, can I encourage you to resolve to be this kind of church, a church that displays a vision of life that offers hope to a harsh and unforgiving culture, because you are a church, a community that reflects the love and the mercy and the grace of our Savior. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, thank you that your eyes are on the righteous and that your ear is open to our prayer. And so as we pray now, as we lift our words to you, our hearts, desires, our, our, our longings, our instincts, our thoughts, as we lift them to you, thank you that you listen. Thank you that you have your eye on us, you care for us. And as we seek to live for you in a culture that is hostile to the things of Christ, increasingly hostile to the reality of grace in the gospel, we pray that you would enable us, enable my friends in this church, enable this community to be a place that is marked by brotherly love and that demonstrates it in actions that are all about good words and pursuit of peace. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.